Emmy-nominated producer Richard Brown has worked with some of the biggest names in Hollywood. He is producer for the groundbreaking HBO anthology True Detective and Hulu series Catch-22. Thank you for joining me, Richard. Hi, Andrea. How are you? You know, I'm all right. Good. Good. I'm happy to hear that. So I always start the conversation off with the question, what do you believe? That's an awfully broad question, Andrea. I know. <clears throat> um, well, I don't believe in anything, really. First, that is a first. <laughs> well, that's not true. I believe that it's, you know, if, you want, if you're talking about religion, then I think the only um, logical and coherent position is, agnostic, is to be agnostic, which is to acknowledge that we really don't know. And if we as humans are willing to accept that we really don't know, then all things are possible and all things are interesting. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's interesting that you would go to religion. Is this a question that you think is a religious, you know? Is there... associate the word, what do you believe? Most people, when they use that, the term belief in that context, they're alluding to religious belief or spiritual belief. I mean, there's lots of things I believe. I believe that avocados taste great. Right. I think that's the nature of your question, is it? Well, no, I mean, you know, you, you could, I mean, it could be, be anything. That's, I'm just, I'm just bringing out the fact that you immediately thought it was spiritual, which yes, it can be, of course. Um, but I just, um, just curious what led you to, to answer in that way. That's all. I just assumed that you meant, um, what are my spiritual or religious beliefs? Mm. The answer I have to that is only that I think agnosticism is the most coherent belief that there is, which is, in other words, to believe that we don't know. Right, right. Okay. But I also believe in, I don't know, decency. I believe in trying to get through life without making the world a worse place. I believe in standing up for what you believe in, whatever that might be. That's perfect. And what do you think we should be standing up for right now? Decency, correcting injustices. I mean, this you know, obviously it's personal to each person, what, 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 what madness is to them. I mean, I think in America right now, it's very clear that um, very many um, profound inequities and injustices have been exposed by and laid bare by this pandemic. I mean, it's happened everywhere, to be fair. The virus has gone around the world exposing um, fault lines and weaknesses in our institutions and politics and cultures. Um, but since I'm here in America, I can say that here, I think it's um, possibly more than any place, those contradictions and fault lines have been exposed. Um, becomes increasingly urgent every day to address the extraordinary racism that's institutionally present in this country. You know, the fact that, as I say, this virus has exposed so many um, fault lines and problems, and maybe it will be that there's some sort of collectivity around this issue will finally false change. James Baldwin said that not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. So perhaps now is a time that we might actually get our act together to collectively face this. Yes, absolutely. I, I agree. Um, in terms of the film business and COVID, I mean, in terms of what you're doing, how, how is COVID in the film business, how has it been affected? 
I mean, obviously, it's it, like all businesses, you know, it's been shut down by it. I mean, uh, <clears throat> by definition, when you shoot a film or a television series, there's a lot of people working in very close proximity. Um, so it, obviously, we can't shoot until there are um, reasonable protocols in place to, uh, to make it safe to do so. So, it, you know, the last few months, or however long it's been, the last two and a half months have been for most people, people who do what I do, certainly, it's been about developing new ideas and new material, um, hopefully ready to make when we're able to make things again. Yes. I think the governor, Governor Newsom, is, is opening from what I last read. So you are getting ready for those protocols then. So you will start to hopefully get it going. Yeah, I mean, there are still some significant hurdles. I mean... Uh, liability and insurance is the biggest one. I mean, productions and uh, are are insured, um, and as of now, the insurance industry is refusing to cover coronavirus-related um, delays or or you know production problems. So this is a kind of standoff that's going on, and so far it uh, hasn't been resolved. But that seems to be the key issue. The medical protocols, the health, public health protocols are fairly easy to work out. Um, they're already shooting in Iceland, Germany, Australia, and the protocols that are in place are, are, are um, clear and logical. It's challenging because it means if, you, if I wanted to shoot a film, I can follow the protocols, which as they currently stand would be you quarantine the crew and the cast together, the duration of the shoot. And everyone's tested and you obey all the all the various um, you know safety and health regulations but the thing is if you're shooting a movie and it's 30 35 or 40 day shoot that's viable television series is often shoot for eight six eight nine ten months and the idea of asking people to quarantine away from their families for six to ten months doesn't seem very practical or possible so, you know, it's going to be obviously like all businesses, it's going to have its challenges getting back, but you know, necessity is the mother of invention, so no doubt we will figure it out. Absolutely. Um, in speaking of invention um, and creativity, where do you find your inspiration? I mean, my job as a, a creative film producer or film and TV producer is to find stories I want to tell. Yeah. Stories that seem like they're um, powerful, compelling, exciting, uh, entertaining, meaningful, worthwhile, relevant. You know, so it's firstly just about finding a story that excites you. Mm. If I find a story that excites me, then I can only hope that it will excite other people. I don't know how to do it beyond that. There are certainly people in this business who try and predict what the market wants, to try to game the market. They try to make assumptions about, well, this was successful, so that means something like it will be successful. Um, I tend not to do that. I don't, I would, if I'm gonna fail, I'd rather fail based on my own instincts rather than trying to second guess what the market wants. It's just about finding stories that I'm very compelled by and characters that, that are, uh, stories that are worth telling. Mm. That's the starting point, right? And then each one of these projects, they take a long, long time. If I identify the story, then you have to find the, the correct writer for that story, the right filmmaker, have to cast it, get it financed, and then make it. This is a you know anywhere from two to you know four, five, six year process per project. You know? So you got to find an idea that you really believe in because you're going to be giving a lot to it 
for a long period of time. Right. And um, how many projects do you work on at once? And my slate um, is about 15 projects at any given time, I would say. 15. Yeah, and not all of those will happen, right? I mean, for reasons beyond anyone's control, some of them just won't happen for a multitude of potential reasons. Um, but yeah, about 15 that you're developing, pushing forward, working on at any given time, and you'd hope that you know, at least half of those come to fruition. Mm. Um, yeah. Amazing. So um, in terms of the key ingredients that make a great film or a great piece of, of whether it's a TV show or, or a movie, or you were mentioning earlier, it has to be a compelling story and all of that. But when you were doing True Detective and you were filming it, did you know at that point on set, well, I guess at what point did you know it was going to be a success? I, I didn't know it was going to be the kind of success it was. There was no way to know that. It was a sort of... Um, strange, rare lightning in a bottle situation where that thing just caught fire globally. Um, but we knew we were doing something good. We knew that the writing was great and we knew that um, the actors, Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey had a spectacular chemistry together. You know, which you can't legislate for. You cast something and you hope you've cast the right actors. But knowing that Woody and Matthew are both great actors in their own right is not the same thing as on the first day of shooting realizing that they have a palpable chemistry. And that together, that the, the, the words on the page are coming to life in a way that feels more than the sum of the parts. It feels like there's something magical happening. So we knew that that was in our favor. These two actors were incredibly compelling and that the writing was great. So we thought we'd made something good. Um, it was also an experiment. It was a different way of making television. We didn't make, um, normally television series are made episodically. You know, each episode is made separately. Um, and so one director will make one episode while the second director is making a different episode and then those episodes are being sent off to post-production and you know the network and the various people involved are seeing cuts of episodes while you're still making the series. And that's not, we didn't do that on this one. We decided to try and make it like a movie, which is to say we shot the entire thing in one go. We cross-boarded the whole eight hours and made it you know, over 134 days, I think. Um, and then we cut, posted, uh, did post-production editing afterwards. So no one saw anything during production. Wow. So it was a giant risk on in that sense. But the reason to do it that way is we're hoping that we could, um, that we could attain the kind of elevated cinematic grammar that, that, that happens in movies. And um, it's much more likely you will get that result if you make it using filmmaking methodology rather than TV methodology. Mm. Um, you're, you're, you're also bringing a continuity into the filmmaking and you're bringing department heads, directors of photography and production designers and costume designers of the highest level who are working across the whole series rather than episodically. Mm -hmm. So you're just elevating you know, all of the cinematic aspects. So it was a risk because that wasn't the way TV was typically made, but HBO let us do it that way. And, uh, and it turned out, turned out to, uh, to be a good idea. Well, yeah, because you were nominated for an Emmy and various other awards, weren't you? It did, it did well, that show. I mean, it was only ever, it was be the beginning, it was intended to be one season, really just a one-off, you know, like an eight-hour limited series. But in success, you know, they always want more. So we did more, and the second one was not as good. <laughs> the third one's pretty good. So, you know, I think we rescued it in the third one.
What are you, uh, what type of content are you working on now? I mean, what's, what's sort of inspiring you or what's really getting your uh, juices flowing at the moment? I don't know, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about what kind of stories um, will make sense to try and tell in the sort of post-corona world. I mean, I think, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that there will be a sort of before corona and after corona. Um, the world's going to change in all sorts of ways that we can, both can and cannot predict. Um, you know, not only because of the virus, but as I say, because of all of the virus sort of revealed about, um, about us and our, and our systems and our cultures and our, the, the dangers of the way we live. So it strikes me that things from the recent past like even if I was telling a story from January of this year, it will feel like it comes from a different era. Yes. It will feel like it comes from a distant past. Mm. Um, but the problem is we can't really yet create stories that take place in the present. Because if you're telling a story, let's say, that takes place in 2021, no matter what the story is, it's going to be very hard to tell that story without taking into account the things that have changed due to what's happened in 2020. And by that, I really mean behavior. There'll be behavioral changes. And it's hard to imagine what those are gonna be. So I think it's challenging right now to try and write things in the contemporary present day moment. Mm -hmm. So I, I, for the moment at least, right now, I'm looking, focusing more on stories from the recent past. Um, and I think once we get to the future slash present, we'll be able to take into account the ways in which the world's changed and build that into future storytelling. One thing I'm not interested in doing is near future dystopia which um, a lot of people seem to think is a good idea. My feeling is we're living in a near future dystopia and that nobody's going to want to see a fictional series about, about such a thing. I could be wrong, but that's my intuition. Mm. Ah, your intuition. We were just talking about intuition before we actually started the podcast. Um, how much do you re rely on your intuition? I mean, unconsciously almost entirely, right? Because all you can really do is... Follow, follow what feels right to you or whether you think something's good or not. And you may think you're assessing that, that, that logically and intellectually, and that those things are probably playing a role. But I think at the end of the day, at least in, in my field, in the creative arts, all you can really finally do is, is, is follow your feelings. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So yeah, I think a lot of it is unconscious. A lot of it is unconscious intuition in terms of what you respond to and why you like something or don't like something. Yes. Yes. I also feel it a lot in my body sometimes, my intuition. I mean, it's, it's like sometimes, you know, it's, it's actually like a vibe. It's a feeling. It's a chill. It's a this. I mean, intuition comes in many forms. Well, you are particularly intuitive, as I remember. <laughs> Rupert has it. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm wondering, um, in terms of, creating content and and what you're thinking about i mean does does you know ethics come into play i mean you, you were saying you know thinking about how, how when you're choosing a story you know um what's the responsibility do you feel very responsible when you're choosing story to tell i mean how far does that go i mean ethics are always important in all things in life no um yeah. as as opposed to morality, which is a different thing, right? Um, I mean, I can be making a story about someone who's immoral, 
but if I'm making it ethically, it just means I'm making it authentically, mm. right? So, yeah, you know, it's important to tell stories about um, uh, all kinds of people and all kinds of you know um, subjects, good and bad. And the ethical way to do it is just is is to be as accurate and uh, and authentic and honest as you can, especially if it's based on a true story. Um, but yeah, I think the simple answer to that is ethics are always important. It's also important to know what your ethics are. I'm not sure that everyone does. Yes, that is true. I, that I believe. Now that's something I definitely believe. There you go. I think it's very easy to shortcut ethics um, in the interest of personal gain. People, people can justify all sorts of things to themselves. Um, we're all very good at self-justifying when necessary, when it feels necessary, when it feels it's to our advantage to, to do so. But I think one has to try and hold oneself to account. So yes, I, I, I think ethics is uh, central to um, what, what, what one should try to do in one's life, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I kind of, I ask this question, I don't ask this question to every person, um, but I, I will ask this question to you. And um, I mean, is there, is there like three pieces or even two pieces of advice that you would give your younger self? <laughs> I wish, <laughs> choose a different career. <laughs> really? I don't know. I mean, maybe my, my sort of, maybe it's a stretch to use the word mentor, but there was a person called Steve Golan who was very influential in my life. He was a, um, yes. a great producer and uh, he, he uh, took, me kind of, took me under his wing when I was starting out. And when I was starting out and I told him that I was going to do this for a living, he said to me, um, you're an idiot. It's the worst job in the world. Don't do it. And, you know, a couple of weeks later, I told him I was going to do it anyway. This is classic Steve. He said, you know, okay, well, you know, come do it with me then. But, you know, yeah, I was warned. And there are days when I've, um, when I've realized that there was wisdom in those words. Mm -hmm. uh, but other days when it's patently false. Other days when it feels like an incredible for good fortune to be in this kind of work. So what is it about when you're saying, you know, the regret of doing what you do, but what, what about your job? is so incredibly difficult. What would be the most two diff most difficult pieces of it? It's, it's very frustrating because um, it's, it's very, very, very hard to get these projects made. What you're talking about in the film and TV business is um, a very unlikely intersection between creativity and capital in the way that other art forms, of course capital is involved in other art forms, but you can do them without, which is to say you can make music or write a book um, or wh whatever it is, write a play, um, even put a play on. You can do these things without large amounts of capital. You can't make a film or a TV show without someone investing millions and millions and millions of dollars. There's a constant negotiation happening between capital and creativity. And in a way, I I'm in the middle of that negotiation. I'm constantly trying to um, manage the expectations of both to make something great whilst um, whilst not being irresponsible and not losing large amounts of money. Right. Um, and so finding that balance is, is, is often challenging. Mm. That, that's, one, that's one thing that's um, complicated about this business. They say where I come from in Scotland, where there's brass, there's muck, which means that wherever there's a lot of money, there will also be a lot of filth. <laughs> <laughs>
and um, and that certainly is the case in, uh, in right. show business. There's also you know great idealistic, inspired, decent um, human beings attempting to make great work, but there's a lot of cynicism. And wherever, as I say, wherever there's a lot of money, there's greed and cynicism. So right. trying to you know trying to make something great in the middle of of that can you know can be challenging. Right. Do you find that it's hard to sort of repel that and not let it invade your, is it something where you have to put up some sort of armor to protect yourself psychically or some, some sort of protection? I mean, you must have to have a very hard shell. You know, you have to keep all that negativity out. It's tricky, right? Because whenever you're involved in the film and TV world, if you're on the front lines of it, so to speak, then... <clears throat> you have to be an unlikely confluence of characteristics. In order to be crazy, you need to be thin-skinned and sensitive. But in order to operate in, 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 in industries such as this, you also have to be thick-skinned, um, you know, and, um, and uh, resourceful and, and tough. So finding the balance between those two things is, is, is interesting. It's not just people in my role, yes, but also film directors have to, have to find this balance. A film director, has to be, you know, or a TV showrunner, has to be incredibly sensitive, as artists are, which means you feel a lot, um, and you can be vulnerable, but you also have to be very, very um, determined and strong-willed and thick-skinned. And there's not many who have both of these inside one person, both of these characteristics inside one person. Right. Wow. It's very interesting watching how different filmmakers go about um, getting what it is they want, if you will. Because um, you need tactics. Tactics. <laughs> you need serious tactics. Um, so what about, you know, I'm just curious throughout all of this, the, these difficult moments and these, this difficult job that you have, you've chosen this career because clearly you're passionate about telling stories. Yeah, and I, I you know, I still, to go back to your first question, I still do believe that um, storytelling in, in this form can have sometimes quite a large impact, um, you know, a meaningful impact in the world. Uh, I, I, would, I would suggest that there have been that films and TV shows, because they reach such wide audiences, they can be, you know, um, they can open eyes and change minds. Um, you know, I'm not saying that we should seek to educate, that's not the primary role, but it's I think um, very worthwhile that whilst telling stories and entertaining people, we should try and also um, advance ideas, introduce ideas, introduce um, things that are worthy of discussion um, or, or more thought. But you know, you gotta be careful, right? Because nobody wants to be lectured to. Uh, there's a, a, a legendary uh, director called Billy Wilder who said that um, if you wanna tell people the truth, you better make them laugh, otherwise they'll kill you. And, you know, I think, you know, he's being slightly flippant, but what he means is if you're going to try and tell people hard truths, you better also entertain them while you're doing it. Right. You know, because people don't want to be lectured to. So that's the, that's a challenge. I would, I would say an example of that in recent years is Jordan Peele's extraordinary film, Get Out, which um, mm. presented as a, as a genre horror film. And, you know, large, worldwide, large mainstream white audiences went to see a film that was really highly entertaining on the one hand, but also exposing 
the profound problems of, of you know, white privilege and racism in, around the world, in America and, and around the world. But it was done in such a way that white audiences were able to, I think, A, be really entertained and B, laugh and C, recognize certain important truths. And, and that's, to me, inspiring when someone's able to do that and tick all those boxes at the same time. So is that what drives something that's just lecturing people, just, you're not going to get a very big audience. You know, you're going you're to get people who already have these beliefs. You're going to reach a constituency of people who already have these beliefs. But if you want to open other people's minds, then you need to sort of sneak it in there. It's like putting um, medicine inside candy for a kid. You know, they won't take the medicine unless you put it in the candy. You know? Absolutely. So is this the part? Is this where your passion comes in then? Your yeah, in the sense that I, I think it's important to try and tell stories that are relevant. Yeah. Not, I mean, not all stories will be. Not everything I've worked on has been. But, you know, it can be relevant in many different ways. I mean, when we made Catch-22, a couple of years ago, we did Catch-22, the famous um, Joseph Heller novel as a limited series. Now, that's a book from the late 50s. Um, and it's set at the end of World War II. And yet, what it's really about is the lunacy of power structures. It's about the lunacy of the way we've organized power structures, these patriarchal, hierarchical, male-driven power structures. And, you know, when we started developing the book, um, it was right before Trump became president. And, but it was already felt relevant in the sense that it was talking about the lunacy of, there's a line in the book where Heller says something along the lines of, you know, the person who is least equipped to lead will inevitably end up leading. And, and you never has that been more clear than it is today, you know? I mean, not, not during my lifetime anyway, has that been more clear than it is today. So, you know, I would, I would say, say in that case, technically too, despite being a story from the past, has incredible, incredible relevance to the, to the present. It's a book about um, the lunacy of the absurdity of everything, the absurdity of power, of power structures, yeah. And, you know, it's also a book about um, futile resistance. And sometimes it does feel like you're engaged in futile resistance, but it's nevertheless important. It's almost nothing more heroic than futile resistance. Because if the alternative is no resist resistance at all. Yes. You know? Very true. Absolutely. Wow. Well, um, thank you, Richard. Well, it's my pleasure, Andrea.